Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to have you here. I'm excited to start a new series with you. So if you have a Bible, before I introduce the series, we're going to be in Psalm 77. The 77th Psalm, and if you didn't bring anything with you to read, we will put it up on the screen for you. I think it's going to be a helpful Psalm for us today. Psalm 77. I'm going to read it all the way through, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. Psalm 77, this is the word of the Lord for you and me today. Asaph, the poet, says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, and I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Okay. Listen, we're starting a new series today called Anthem. And this is our third volume of Anthem. Let me explain what that means. We started this back in 2018, actually. Picked it up again in 2021. I'm excited to pick it up probably every two or three years. It's just our walk through the Psalms. We're probably always going to log a little time in the Psalms. Um, And here's why. It builds a healthier believer. It, It brings some symmetry to our doctrine, how we see the Lord. And this is important for us. As we've said time and time again, one of the most important things about you is what will come into your mind and what comes into your heart whenever you think about God. It is important the Psalms are going to walk alongside us in this because our theology does not just determine our thoughts and our actions, but it actually determines our emotions. You see, God interacts with you and me in the Bible. He describes himself in the Bible in various different ways. He describes mankind in the Bible. He describes our problem. He describes his remedy in the Bible. And then God decided in in his ultimate wisdom and creativity, that he would do so. He would disclose himself through a wide scope of literary styles, genres of literature, 
That's why some parts of your Bible read a little differently than other parts of your Bible. You've got narrative. We spent the better part of last year through the book of Acts. That's narrative. You've got prophecy. We have wisdom literature. We have epistles, which is just a letter written. We have that. All of these are different ways of talking to you and me and therefore requiring us to listen a little bit differently. And we all read different genres differently, right? I read memes differently than I read a tax return, and so do you, right? I read narrative in the Bible a little differently than I read apocalyptic literature like what we would find in the book of Revelation. This is actually how you and I can say with confidence that we take and read the whole Bible literally, yet literally according to the genre. This is the way that we honor the author, the intent of the author, and that is important. God breathes this scripture. He has an intent in what he says. So, We can read it according to the genre and take it literally. The point of your Bible is not to just transmit information to you. It's not an Ikea manual. It's not just trying to check some boxes in your mind. It's also there to invoke your emotion and your imagination. Poetry is effective for this. The Psalms are effective for this because God is more than just a set of data points. He expresses emotion. Our God is emotional. And he made mankind in his image. You're emotional. And he connects to us emotionally, not just mentally, not just academically. So the Psalms are vital to understanding who God is. In fact, if you remove the book of Psalms from your theology, you will arrive with a misshapen God and therefore a misshapen view of yourself and a misshapen life. And friends, listen, I know where some of you are already at mentally, you're already inwardly groaning because we're going through the Psalms and the Psalms is poetry and I get it and I said it a million times, if you hate poetry, you hate it less than me. (laughs) I'm way ahead of you when it comes to poetry in general. I was telling a couple friends this morning, I got caught once and once only cheating in high school and it was an English class. And I remember where I was, I think it was a sophomore in high school and the, the assignment was to go home and write a poem. And listen, I had all the intents of doing that. I honestly did. I thought, I'm going to go home. I don't want to do this. I'm going to gear up and get it done. I can do this. I can do this. I could write a poem. And I got home, and all my friends were there playing Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Right? I almost don't even have to finish the story. Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, write a poem. (laughs) So what I did is probably what most guys would have done if they were in the same situation. I found a book of poetry sitting on a coffee table I opened it up. I didn't recognize the author, so I just copied it. Copied it, turned it in the next day, thinking no way they'll catch me. It was some book I've never seen before, some poet I've never heard of before. And sure enough, it was some obscure poet, but the English teacher thought that there was some sport, like, like a spark of brilliance among her, that some student would turn in something so beautiful and so profound. So that day she walks me down to the office to introduce me to the principal because I'm some sort of a prodigy, right? And you can imagine, I'm thinking, this is not going the way I wanted it to go. Like this is all getting out of control. But because the poem I picked out was kind of morose, kind of darkly mooded, when I was done with the principal, they sent me down to the counselor (laughs) who started asking me questions, probing on how I was doing, how I was feeling. And at that point I said, I can't do this anymore. I copied the poem. I copied the poem. There's nothing wrong with me, and I'm not brilliant. They gave me an F. Poetry is uphill for me. I've never been a fan of taking a long time with weird words that we don't normally use, attempting to make them rhyme, 
to say something that we could say very simply with very simple words. I'm a little too pragmatic for that. Poetry feels inefficient to me. Maybe you're built the same way, right? If you are, I get it. I want to challenge you today, though, if you're like me. Trust that God wants to minister to you today and through this series in beautiful ways that really can only be done through something like a psalm, right? These psalms, like all scripture, have the power to change your life forever. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy, and I want you to stay in Psalm 77 if you do have it open there. But he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Psalms will complete you. The Psalms will complete you. And we all feel a little bit incomplete already anyway, don't we? Especially emotionally. And the Psalms, again, will be helpful. They're actually song lyrics. They used to be put to music. That can be lost on us sometimes. This, by the way, is why we call the series Anthem. We explained what this meant the last two times we have been through this. An anthem is just an emotionally rousing song that's connected to a group, connected to a, a, a cause maybe. Some of you, if you grew up when I did, some of the anthems we had, it was in a, it Smells Like Teen Spirit, the Nirvana song. It kind of captured my generation. Um, Fight the Power, Public Enemy was kind of an anthem that captured my generation. We probably also recognize the word anthem from national anthems. <laughs> the word is literally in the, the, the title. There's 195 national anthems in this world that people kind of respond to. Fight songs, college fight songs, those are kind of anthems because there's emotion attached to it, right? Rocky Top, according to Sports Illustrated, Number three, most influential fight song, although we all know if you're a real vault, it's not even our real fight song. But it's, the, it's in the top three of all time because it's the only fight song that ever appeared on a top 100 music list, right? And, and, and it does, it grabs us emotionally. It could grab us. And that is transgenerational. You don't even have to be in Knoxville to hear Rocky Top and have it do something to you. Listen, my oldest daughter was there when the goalpost came down last year. She was in the stadium when, when, when our whole city kind of woke up. She will never hear Rocky Top again and not think of that moment, not being emotionally connected to that moment. That's the, that's the power of an anthem, okay? Without emotion connected to it, it's just a song. So as we work through the Psalms, we're going to honor them by not dissecting out all the emotional baggage, I think that's how we honor the author in this. We're not going to treat them as anatomy subjects under a microscope, because if we do, I think we'll ruin them a little bit, right? In fact, I think it's, if we could go back to the connection, just for a second, between our doctrine and our emotion, I think it's important to recognize that it is our emotions that ultimately expose our doctrine. It's really how you feel that's going to expose what you really think about God. Those aren't separate. I can tell you what I believe. But if you watch the full range of how I emote, you will know exactly how I believe, what I believe. And when it comes to God, I think sometimes we can be emotionally clumsy, which is why sometimes you'll pray and you'll say something that you really mean in your prayer, but you're not quite sure it was appropriate or theologically accurate, but you meant it. Or you'll say something that is very accurate, theological, but you didn't mean it. And so we can be clumsy. 
This is where the Psalms can seem to do us a solid favor because it kind of opens the window and lets some fresh air in where we can let our emotions connect to the Word of God and let the Word of God connect to our emotions and we can be honest. In fact, some of the Psalms you'll notice if you're a student of the Word of God and as you grow in your understanding of Scripture, you will come across some Psalms that have really just some soul-crushing lyrics that feel kind of inappropriate. Like, man, I can't believe somebody said this. It'll feel like that. Sometimes you'll have a psalm where the poet is having a great day. Everything is bright. The birds are chirping. They just had a stellar time with the Lord, and then they wrote a psalm out of it. And then sometimes you have a poet who is dying inside. Here, check this. Sometimes they're in the same psalm. And that's what we just read in Psalm 77, to be very honest with you. So, our goal is to help you connect emotionally to Christ, not just mentally. Your affections for the Lord are built on more than just the cold, hard calculus. Okay. Now, and this makes sense, but it's also important for us as missionaries. I'm a pastor up on stage right now talking to you, but first and foremost, I'm a missionary to this city. I'm a missionary. I'm a sent one with the message, to, just like you. I'm, and I'm no more a missionary than you are. But this is one thing I know about Knoxville. It's looking for an answer to their life that is just more than something that will alter and edit what they think, but, but how they feel as well. Your neighbors are not looking for a, a static Wikipedia article on what is true. They're looking for something to trigger their imaginations, their dreams, their hopes. Another thing I know about Knoxville, our city is also uninterested in a God who they cannot be honest with which is why I love Psalm 77 so much. It's a classic lament, right? That's the, that's the category. In full disclosure, laments are my favorite. There are other categories. Uh, you'll hear next week a different category, a song of ascent. There are psalms of wisdom, psalms of thanksgiving. There's imprecatory psalms. Those are a little trickier. We'll get to walk through that. We, when we build a volume of anthem, we try to hit all of them just to kind of teach how the Bible reads through the wisdom literature. But I do love laments because it's, it's, a, it's a flavor of psalm that seems to extend an honesty that honors a rich relationship. Asaph, in this case, is the poet. He's the psalmist, and he's struggling in a way that's very familiar to you and me. Honestly, if you change his clothes, you change the timeline, you put him here, he is you. You're Asaph. We're all very, very similar. He's twisted up. So twisted up, he can't sleep. Have you been there? So scared, anxious, heavy-hearted, frustrated, tormented, maybe a mixture. Maybe you don't even have words to kind of describe what you're feeling. But one thing you know, when you wake up at 2.07 a.m., you just can't go back to sleep. Your eyelids are pried open in such a way. I think we've all been there. Asaph is struggling, not broadly. It's not a broad struggle. It's a specific struggle in a specific direction. You know who it's with? It's with God himself. He's in agony over what we could very easily call today a crisis of faith. Asaph is wondering, is God really God? Is he really who he says he is? In fact, let's look at verses 1 through 4 and read them again, and you'll start to see some of the texture come out of this psalm. It says this, Asaph says, I cry aloud to God. 
aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. From his point of view, it looks like God has abandoned his promises to the people of Israel, him being one of them. And after all, if God is only a promise maker and not a promise keeper, what's the point? Not a bad question. I mean, what, what are we even doing here? What, what is this? What, what are we doing? If God is just good at making promises and not good at keeping them. And listen, I'd submit that every Christian swims in these waters of crisis eventually. I'd probably question you if you hadn't. I mean, if you've been in the Lord long enough, you will bump into these moments. How else can we really learn how to exercise and stretch our faith unless it's been tested, right? We've all been there. Something slams into us and we waver. What we used to think about God is tested, even, even threatened. Even the very character of God himself. Some of you are there now. You haven't bailed on God, right? But you're beginning to re-examine all the things that you were taught when you were a kid. Starting to re-examine everything that you've heard, everything that you just accepted. Friend, that's called a crisis of faith. Asaph understands you. I'm so, so thankful this is in the Bible, right? This, of course, this crisis will start to invade our thoughts, Invade our interactions with each other, just what we think about when we're not thinking about anything, and apparently even our sleep, right? Because we can't make sense of this God who doesn't look like he's carrying through with his promises. And friends, it's possible to avoid the, the discomfort of this crisis because we could busy ourselves, right? We've just got stuff going on. We can kind of be distracted. I mean, after all, we've got inboxes to clean. We've got kids to put to bed. But here's what I know. When you lay down to sleep and your brain has nothing left to distract it and you're trapped in this sanctuary of just you versus your crisis, I mean, you just, nothing left to, to, to pull you away from this struggle, this pain, these doubts, fears, anxieties. That, that right there is the emotional space we're meant to connect with in this psalm. Again, I'm thankful that it's in the Bible. Asaph is helpful for those of us who have been in crisis, probably helpful for some of you that are in crisis today. The anxiety and fear that pin us down make us wonder if he will really come through with us. Sometimes, sometimes, we are able to quickly reassure our drooping faith. We feel like a bruised reed. We, we're just on the edge. But, but, but we remember a passage, a, a memory passage maybe. And we kind, of, we kind of brighten up and we're able to kind of keep going. Or, or maybe community, and community's great for this, somebody says something to you. You get some bright counsel. Someone reminds you of the gospel. Somebody kind of lifts your, your drooping head. Somebody kind of holds you together. And then you're fine, right? That happens. <laughs> but sometimes a memory verse or even community feels very ineffective, which is why whenever we get thin in this direction, we wonder if God can be trusted. I mean, we're, we're, we're reading... We're reading somebody that says, when I remember God, I moan. He's saying that. When I remember God, I, I don't get brighter inside. I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. It's not like he didn't have any community. It's not like he didn't have any scripture. 
before him. And he doesn't have a Bible like we have a Bible. I get it. But he did have truth in front of him. And he still finds himself asking the same questions you and I are known to ask. Why would God allow that to happen? Can he not see the pain? I thought he promised this. Maybe he is good, but just not for me. All the same questions you and I ask. By the way, before I even move any further, does this level of guttural honesty in the Bible make you uncomfortable? Does it make you struggle a little bit? Why? Why does it make you uncomfortable? It is God who breathed this out to make you complete. It's okay. It's okay to square your shoulders with it. You see, despair comes when we usually start to believe that our beef with God and his alleged beef with us is not going to change. That's when despair starts to seek in and sit. And if we stay in despair long enough, we'll eventually find something very shiny to distract us from the pain that we're living today. We can bury ourselves really in shiny distractions that numb this nagging doubt that we have about God. And this is where a lot of people in the church can be found too, by the way. You might believe in God technically. Technically, we believe in God. We might be able to recite a creed like the Apostles' Creed. We might be able to sing a doxology. Might be able to lead a Bible study. Might be able to lead a church. And yet walk around with a wound that just makes us wonder, can I really trust all of myself to the Lord? Can I risk everything? Is he worth risking everything on? This psalm, in all of its honesty, kind of requires and demands an honesty from you as well. That's, that's what it's asking for. Everything is on the line with something like this. And, and if Asaph's lament would have stopped here in verse 4, if it stops right here, eventually I think he probably would have found distractions to just medicate his sadness. I think that's probably what, I, I don't know, I'm just guessing that's what he would do. Not everybody that deconstructs from a belief in God goes home and puts a snarky bumper sticker on their car or, or just vocalizes it on social media for everyone else to be company with. But most people will just die a silent death of boredom and inauthenticity in a church pew or a church seat, right? So what do we do in our crisis of faith? Whenever we experience this gap between our hope and reality, Whenever we experience that gap, it's God's invitation to pray. It's God's invitation for you and me to pray, to cry out to him, even in a lament like this. And we're going to talk about the anatomy of a lament in a moment. But one thing that you need to know about laments is they're good because they don't give up on hope, but they don't ignore reality. You kind of catch that with Asaph, don't you? He's got hope, but he kind of sees what today looks like as well. Paul says this about Abraham in Romans 4, he says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, right? Or the NIV says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Abraham stakes his life on hope, a picture painted by God himself, and yet he does not take his eyes off of reality. This is not just theological honesty, it's theological courage that Abraham is doing there. And even with Asaph, I don't want to cheapen his crisis by making it look like there was some easy, quick, direct path from struggle to solution, right? I think that would dilute the story. Like he just kind of, he just kind of rambles a little bit, he vents, he shakes his fist at God, and then he just reads the Bible, he finds it and reads his Bible, and, and then he's just like, okay, I'm, I'm okay again. I'm okay, everything's fine. 
It says he thought of God and he moaned. In fact, it says this in verse 5. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Okay, and right here it feels good. It's like, okay, he found his Bible. He's doing well. He's tracking through it. He's, he's scribbling some stuff down in his journal. He's tracking well. Well, then all of a sudden, these questions come. Listen to these questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? I thought he found his Bible. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Basically, he's saying, if all of this is true, then maybe I feel a little bit worse than I did before. Have you ever tried to minister to somebody who is struggling, crisis of faith, bringing them good, true statements just to see their pain amplified? Just to see them struggle a little bit more? Well, maybe God is that good. Maybe he's just not that good to me. Maybe he does make promises, but maybe he's not going to keep them from me. I'm not feeling that. So what do we do? We look for proof. Look for proof. Look for proof that God is not just a promise maker, but a promise keeper. This is what we do with each other, right? This is what we do horizontally. I make a promise to you. It's going to be easy for you to think and maybe even to say out loud, hey, don't, don't tell me, show me, right? Don't tell me, show me. We just carry the same thing to the Lord. This is what it says in verse 10, okay? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Y'all are all smiling at me. Something just happened. Yeah. That's exciting. So, <laughs> listen. <laughs> Where do I start with the bat? Listen, if you are if you're fairly new to Legacy, we do have a mascot. He does come out. He means you no harm. We just startled him. He will go away and he will leave you alone. <laughs> the bat. Well, let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember, not the words, not the words, the deeds. The deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your, what, words of old? Wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work. Not, not just words, but work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Right here is where we see the pivot in a lament. All laments, all good classic laments will have a pivot of confidence. This is the, if you were to do an anatomy of a lament, you have the direct address. That's the first thing. This is me speaking to the Lord and the Lord listening to me, right? Then you have the cry for help, the, the quote-unquote complaint, the body of the lament, okay? And then you have the pivot, this place of confidence, remembrance, right? Without this pivot, we can easily be caught just grumbling, just grumbling, venting. And, and we don't even have to be vocal to grumble, do we? We can do it in our heart. Internal grumbling is just a silent complaint. I'm saying all of this to say don't confuse healthy honesty with sinful grumbling. We're fortunate because we have this entire psalm on display. Right? 
We could read it from front to finish, so we know that Asaph is not in sin here. He had already worked through this before he even wrote the first stanza. We can get caught sometimes thinking that we're limiting when we're just realistically grumbling. It sounds like this. God, I have to be honest. I'm watching evil triumph and your children perish. You might be great, but you're probably not good. It makes me wonder if you're even real. I don't see it. I don't see it. Listen, that's, that's not just grumbling. That's a sin. What I just did was, a, that, that would be a sin. It's a sin of unbelief. It's as good as an accusation that says, you're a liar because you said you were good, but you're not. You said you were great, but you're not. You said that you would carry through, but you're not. That's, that's a sin. A lament sounds a little different. I know, Lord, what the Bible says, but I can't match it with my eyes and I can't match it with my heart. I know what's going to happen in the end, but it hurts like heck right now. I know that you're good, and I know that you're good to me, but help me with my unbelief. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Let's read the last part of what Asaph says, verse 16. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Asaph is plainly describing really the pinnacle of the Old Testament, maybe the most climactic event, which is the exodus through the Red Sea. That's what he's describing right now. I mean, Asaph knew the promises of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David. He knew, he knew his Bible. He knew Israel's history. It helps to know your Bible, right? Just as a quick aside, whenever you're up at 2.07 a.m. and you're fighting, flighting all over the place because it feels like God pulled that cosmic rug out from underneath you, it helps to have something to hearken back upon, not just words, but deeds, proof that God is a promise keeper. It helps to see something in the Bible where we can say, I see, I remember, I believe, I bow, I trust. For you and me, the same God who made promises through Abraham and David made promises through a cross and an empty tomb in the person of Jesus. Not just words. Not just words. Our most climactic event is not Moses splitting a sea. It's Jesus splitting the earth. It's not just Pharaoh being laid down. It's death itself being buried in the grave. God made promises. He made promises from times of old and in the life of death and life of Jesus, he keeps these age-old promises thousands and thousands of years before Jesus was in a manger as we celebrated in Advent. Thousands and thousands of years before that, God says to the enemy, oh, you'll catch his heel, he'll crush your head. That's in the garden. A thousand years before Jesus comes about, God says to David, I'll raise up an offspring to sit on your throne forever. He's talking about Jesus. 700 years before Jesus, through Isaiah, this guy is going to be pierced, crushed, and shamed, and you will be healed. Promise after promise after promise after promise. Jesus is the centerpiece of old promises made by God. 
proof that God does not just make promises with words, but he keeps promises with wondrous deeds. Here is my challenge to you today. Carry your honest struggles to the Lord and place them at his feet. You have them. Lament is not giving up on hope, and it's not ignoring reality. It is the prayer that says, with so many words, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Because, friend, listen, there's nowhere in the Bible that's encouraging you to be fake with your trust, to fake your hope. That's not a virtue. But you're also free to fix your eyes on God who says he is good, he is great, and he has shown proof of that. Cry out a lament. Cry it right out a lament. I know guys that write it out and then set it on fire whenever they're done. That's some symbolic thing. I think it's a little over the top. You do you. But lament. And here's the thing. Will this fix everything? Not exactly. It won't. I'll be honest with you. If you keep reading, in fact, Psalm 73 through 83, they're Asaph. You're quickly going to see how many times Asaph had to keep going back and doing the same thing over and over again, right? He had to keep doing this. There's repeat applications. In fact, he says this in Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Almost. My steps had nearly slipped. He has to keep going back. In fact, our psalm today doesn't even have a real stated resolution. There's no explicit happily ever after, but it's implicit, right? I mean, you catch the feeling he ended a little bit better than he started. He's more complete anyway. We do know that. Lament requires repetition, a returning to the gospel, a gospel return constantly to remind ourselves, to remind our despair that God does not just make promises, but he keeps them, and not just for other people, but for me. For me. In fact, when we stop returning to the monument of God's trustworthiness, which is his gospel, when we stop doing that, we live lives of bored grumbling, we vent, we distract ourselves, we complain, we walk with open wounds, we're anxious, moaning, grumpy, fatigued, fearful, sleepless. Friends, I want you to enjoy a God whose footprints disappear in the chaos and leads his people with a kind hand like a shepherd leads his sheep. I've been wrestling with this psalm all week. For the same reasons you're probably called to wrestle with it, there's places for you and me to repent. There's places for us to struggle and wrestle with this. Where do you medicate and distract yourself from the fact that honestly you feel a little ripped off by God? Where are you doing that? It's okay to say it. It's okay to be honest with the Lord. Right? Are you, in fact, grumbling when you do it? What does that sound like? How are you doing? These are questions you can ask yourself because there's a place for repentance. There's a place for us to say, God, I know you're not a liar. I know you're not a liar. I know you keep your promises. I'm just struggling. Help, help me with my unbelief. Help me. Help me. 